Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast on Prince here on Podcast Juice. My name is Michael Dean. I always, sometimes I always say we have a legend in the building. We have a special episode. Well, this is one of those. This is a super special one. We are honored today to have one of the legends in the game, particularly of audio and production and in the music industry. And before I introduce him, salute to Big Sexy and Saxer. How are you? I'm doing great. I, I'm flattered that you would call me a legend, but you Hilarious. Know, I'm doing all right. <laughs> You're a local legend. How about that? I'll take um, that. <laughs> <laughs> but ladies and gentlemen, give us a virtual round of applause. We have Mr. Bernie Grudman in the house. Bernie, sir, how are you? I'm fine. I'm glad to be here. Always interested to talk about Prince. Oh, well, all thank right. you. Thank you, all sir. Right. Well, we're, we're interested to talk about you. Listen, for a lot of us um, from back, and I'm one of these old school cats who are used to go to the record store as a kid and go pick up the new, you know, whatever was new. I would go to Tower Records every Friday and pick up whatever came out. And of course, it was Interprints, among other groups. But one of the things we always used to do is we would read those liner notes. Like they were like scriptures out of the Bible. Like we was like, okay, yeah, we're going to play the record, but pull the insert out. We're going to read the credits, blah, blah, blah. And you would always see this name, Mastering by Bernie Grudman. And I was like, man, who is that? Like... And then I look at other albums I'd see, he, he on this one too. Like, and, and for us as kids, you know, that was like, how is he on uh, the Michael Jackson record? And then how is he on Prince? It was like, the, you know, those are crossing over. How is he crossing over? These are whole different worlds. Not understanding that whole process. Um, but we would always see your name. And so then we start to research and like, okay, what is mastering? And for me personally, that got me into uh, going to the studio and doing my own records, but actually going in there and, you know, oh, okay, two-inch tape, a half-inch tape, and this and that and a third, and understanding, oh, this is what mastering is. I had no idea. So, sir, uh, before we just lay it out, and because you've done all this great works that you've touched, can you just explain to the layman, the fan, like, what is mastering? Yeah, well, that, that is a question that comes up a lot. In fact, it used to be this thing, whenever they would introduce me, they would say, well, this is that area that's really mysterious. <laughs> we don't really understand what goes on, but boy, it can be a lot different when it comes out of there, but we don't know what they're doing. And now it's not quite as big a mystery, but I mean, when it really comes down to it, you know, you really can work in many different types of music. Uh, especially uh, uh, just be, be, because of what music really is. Because music is a, an emotional uh, kind of expression of, of whoever's uh, making the music, of their point of view. And it's really, everybody's really the same in that pursuit, in a way. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's polka music. You know, they're just uh, trying to express the same emotions that we all have. We all have the exact same emotions. Artists and, and musicians and singers and whatever, they're trying to portray those emotions through music. Now, they might have different ways of doing it. It might be hip hop. It might be rap. It might be R&B. It might be middle of the road. doesn't matter. I mean, it all... Is, is what it comes down to, it, it all tends to be a, a, an emotional expression that you're trying to portray and, and have somebody see your point of view. 
See, that's what's interesting too. It's your point mm. of view of that same emotion. And it enriches you to be able to hear other people uh, exciting that kind of emotion or, or speaking to you in, in, in whatever emotion they're trying to talk to you in. So some people are just better at it than others. Like people like Prince, uh, you know, it's the kind of thing where you put something like that on and, and right away it connects emotionally with you. It's more direct in, a, in an interesting way. Uh, because I think he, there, there's just some kind of other insight there that some of the great, great, great artists have, but it, it, but they're all really trying to get to the same place. They're all trying to, uh, and I'm trying to help them get a easier, more direct, uh, a connection so that that music is easy for the listener to connect with. So, uh, that's what mastering does. Mastering is trying to even heighten the experience so that that, they, that, that when somebody plays that person's record, they're gonna. It's easy for them to connect and, and feel what's going on and get the message, the emotional message that's there. So that's what my job is. And you know, like you know, my background is really ironic that I have a, a, a big uh, reputation in, in 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 rock or whatever. I do rock stuff. I do hard metal. I do a lot of things. I have I have certain preferences, but uh, you know. <sighs> Being in this business so long, I've come all the way from being a real snob. <laughs> you know, I at one time, you know, I was I was in the beatnik period. I was in I was a bebop jazz guy. Mm. I was into jazz and so forth and classical and and things like that, but kind of esoteric things. And so at one time, when it, like way back when I was a teenager, I I was you know I always thought you know pop music I wasn't as interested in, mm -hmm. but. And you know, when you're a teenager, you know everything. Right. So, uh, <laughs> so I've come a long way through the years uh, being exposed to all these different kinds of music. I've come a long way in realizing that it all has a place. I mean, even, uh, and it all, whatever they're trying to do, if it's elevator music, uh, when I'm in an elevator, I don't want to have to think too much. I want something maybe soothing. I want something very schmaltzy maybe. It's all right. You know, and if somebody who did that elevator music really believed in it, you're going to respond to it. in. it, it might not be a, a deep experience, but it's going to respond to it in the way they want you to. Same way with uh, dance music. They're working for just one thing to get you up and boogie and carry on and mm -hmm. at a party or whatever. And the guys that believe in it really come out with stuff that makes you want to jump up and dance. And uh, because you're not going to put a piece of classical music on at a party. You know, you're going to put on something right. that makes people want to move. So, I mean, all this music has a place. It's just that yeah, there are some people that just do it better than others. And Prince is definitely one of those. <laughs> Man, let me, let me ask you a question. You just said something that was really interesting. And, and I was watching an interview you did uh, online last night, just kind of re researching you. But the whole thing of being sort of a music snob or you know, being particular to a particular style of music. In your case, you were seeing jazz and, and things of that nature. And and just to throw out there, you've done stuff for Steely Dan, you know, Steely Dan. You know, these are the classic albums. Uh, Thriller, of course, Purple Rain. Uh, Herb Albert. Yeah. Uh, Carpenters. Uh, all the way till you get to something like uh, Dr. J's The Chronic. I mean, just such a wide, vast, yeah. <laughs> you know, thing there. But... How do you, what was, um, 
and just to go back to that whole prejudice part, like if you were really into jazz music and then here's like, what was the album that came to you that you were like, before you heard it and you were like, I don't like that type of music. Like, was there, what was there, do you remember, was there an album where you kind of was like, you know what? Okay. I understand. Like, as you said, all of these genres have a place in the human emotion, you know, and, and now I get it. Is there a point that you started to realize that? Well, I think uh, even when I was a teenager and so forth, uh, uh, you know, it was kind of the birth of all of this, of rock and and so forth. And uh, uh, I think the thing, that one of the, some of the things that started coming through to me actually were uh, the more R&B oriented stuff. Now, and that makes sense because, you know, when you go to get into bebop jazz, it's it's a lot about feel. And uh, the only thing about it is, though, it's in a lot. It's uh, with with bebop jazz. It's a long emotional story because jazz is all about improvising. So it's like a abstraction of the tune that mm -hmm. takes you on a, a all expanded view of that tune. And if you're a good player, you don't lose sight of that tune, but you take people on an abstract trip that gives you a tremendous number of points of view of how to look at that tune. And you, have, you practically recompose the tune within that same tune. Now, pop music is a little more decided ahead of time. You know, it's, it's like the writer and the, and the arranger and all these people actually do a lot of that, in a sense, improvising. And then the singer, of course, puts their twist on things. And, you know, there's jazz in almost everything. Mm -hmm. So you take... Uh, uh, some of these R&B tunes that were coming out in the late 50s and so forth, uh, you know, it, 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 they all contain, like, like if you're singing a song and you just bend a note a little bit, that's jazz because you're, you're improvising in a sense. Mm -hmm. It's not a, a big explorative thing, but it definitely it impinges on jazz. So, I mean, jazz is a lot at the basis of almost all music, I think. It has a lot to do with it because jazz was also tapping into that just that fundamental human emotions. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, so I mean, uh, I, I'm not sure what record, what some of the records were that really did it for me, but I think it probably happened more, more in the mid-60s when I finally got to Hollywood and I started doing a big variety of things when I first started mastering. And, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I started hearing some you know, more middle of the road stuff like that, all that stuff with Dionne Warwick, uh, the, uh, you know, do, do you know the way to San Jose, all those tunes and stuff like that, that she did that were burnt back, burnt back crack tunes, okay. or even the really simple stuff that Herb Alpert did, you know, it's like businessman's bounce, but it had a nice feel. It didn't have a lot of uh, guts to it in a way. But uh, but then when you got into uh, R and B, it, it it really to me it's easy for me to adapt to R and B or things like Prince or things like Michael because I mean that's really close to what I was raised what I raised myself on was jazz. I mean it has that it has it's very heavy on feel, and that's where Prince was uh, outstanding, especially on the first four or five albums. Mm. I mean, uh, with Sheila E and people like that. I mean, those those albums had a fantastic rhythmic feel, and that really got me. 
you know that that uh, that that stuff is is special and huh. i don't i'm not sure how you get it you know <laughs> but uh but they have it so just to jump into the prince thing real quick um you worked on his first did you work on his first uh yes, three or four I did. albums i did his first album the one that didn't that wasn't a hit for for you yeah that that one uh it it, uh, it 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 was the second album that put him on the map. Mm-hmm. I, I I don't know the progression exact what the names of them are. I don't even remember. But I know the first album. That was the first time I met Prince and the first project that I did with him, and it just didn't do well. But the second one it exploded. And uh, but I never know. You know, in fact, I'll hear a lot of things that I think are fantastic, but they just don't make it. And I don't know why. Mm. It's like promotion, maybe certain aspects of it. Not enough payola. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know hey. what it is. But, uh, but, you know, I, I mean, there is that aspect. But, you know, some of that happens in the industry. But the thing is, if you're as good as Prince, it's only a matter of time and you're, you're going to get recognized. Okay. And uh, because it was really obvious that this guy had something really unique, special, different than most people. In fact, he was different than most people that I worked with. What was your, uh, what did you think of him when you first met him? And I'm curious how that process works. Do they, does he come with you with the finished, you know, piece of work? And does he sit in the studio while you do this? Or Well, they do. No, now see, now Michael Jackson didn't. I, I did, in fact, even Thriller, I did all on my own. Really? Uh, because the engineer is a good friend of mine. I've done a lot of work for him, but Bruce Woodin. Mm. And, uh, you know, and sometimes he would attend and we would work on it together. But they kind of left a lot of that to me. And uh, so, but, but it's always done by, uh, with a, um, we, we always have to interface with each other, though. We have to make sure that we're on the same wavelength. We have to make a, a test cut or a test uh, masterings. Mm-hmm. And, and and give it to uh, the artist and the engineer or whoever's involved in the producer. We need, I need to know if I'm going in the right direction because I can make things go way off in another direction. And it doesn't even mean that it's wrong, but it doesn't service their dream. And so what my job is a lot of times is to get on their wavelength, actually, and in, enhance what they're doing and make it a much more effective experience for the listener. I want that to communicate, the emotional uh, part of the music to communicate with people. And if I, sometimes I can go too far, I can make it too aggressive, and maybe they want it a little more romantic. So that's fine, but I can manipulate the sound quite a bit. And so I can really change the feeling of it. I mean, I've had things like that happen to me, and it, it humbles you in a way because I remember at A&M when I was doing things, sometimes I would do things that were a little bit more ballad-oriented, but I would make them just as an audiophile record, real clear and clean and detailed and everything jumping out at you. Hmm. And I remember even Herb Alpert, he called me in his office. He said, boy, he says it sounds good, but that's not the feeling I wanted. And I went, uh-oh. You know, <laughs> so this, and, and it, it taught me a lesson that, wait a minute, it's not only about me. You know, it, it, and it wasn't that it was wrong. It's just that he wanted to uh, it kind of like increase that feeling of romantic kind of spatial kind of 
not too clear sound. Uh, so uh, it's really tricky sometimes to, uh, but see, I've had a lot of experience now. I've been doing it so long that when I hear a type of music, I have a pretty good idea of what they're looking for. But I still really want to know what they think. Everybody approve, they have to, I have to get an approval and so forth. And that, that's the way the industry works. We might work on the, an album and do go over and over it and, and do little changes here and there. And then it, they have to sign off a, uh, sign off in the, in the end that it's really as good as they think it can be. And I'm right. also in the same position. I, I think I've gotten a, a, the most out of it. So uh, it, it is a uh, joint effort. Okay. Uh, it's just like mixing. You know, it's, it's not just one person all the time. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah. It's uh, but but Prince definitely he's one of those people that you know he he's when he brought in stuff you he had it pretty close to the way he wanted it and it, the one thing about Prince is though is he didn't want to be uh, influenced by what other people thought in a way mm. he he didn't like being in Los Angeles and he didn't like being around the people in the record business and the and the uh, the a and r people and the uh, promotion department and all these people that kind of tend a lot of time to influence you to do things in a certain way that they think will make it sell better mm -hmm. and prince definitely was not that kind of person he was very possessive of his art and he did not want to spend uh, you know be uh affected by these kind of commercial ideas he had a vision and i could feel that when i worked with him mm -hmm. and he would come in for one day and he'd go right back to minneapolis what, what kind of things would he and i'm curious so that sort of influence from the record company does that ever sort of permeate its way to you to like they're like saying hey we want these albums to kind of sound like this other well, no, stuff no 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 okay. no no it's a producer's medium it's not the okay. a and department they can't tell me what to do gotcha uh it's it's uh if it, it, it all has to do with the artist and the producer and and uh in fact they're pretty careful about that because they know that if they have me change it from what the artist wants or what the producer wants and especially if it doesn't do well they can blame them. Hmm. So uh, they're they're cautious about. It. They always have been cautious about that. It's it's really up to the producer. Now there are a few record executives that have a lot of power <laughs> that do kind of influence a change in some of these recordings, but they still have to go through the artist and the producer. You know, they can't tell. Me, I mean, I don't really answer to the to the A and R department or the promotion department or the record company. In a way, the the people that hire me. Are not, it's, they pay for it, but it's really the producer and the artist that hire me. It's not the record company in a way. So are you like a part of their budget? Sort of the I am part of the budget. Uh, okay, gotcha. But uh, they, it's all kind of controlled by, it's really a producer's medium, the whole thing. Now, sometimes it's an artist-producer, but still, it's a producer's medium. And it's, uh, and it has, and they're the, they're the last word that for me, you know, because I've seen fights before between the record company and the producer, but the producer is the one that calls up and makes the appointment with us, okay. and we do the work for the producer and the artist. We're not the the record company's paying for it, 
but we're not really talking to the record company that much. Hmm. Uh, and we've had, when they've gotten big, big disputes before, we've had big fights between the two where, they, where the record company wants to take it back and say, we paid for it, so we should be able to do what we want with it. And I'll say, well, yeah, but you didn't really hire us. We're <laughs> trying to honor the producer and the artist. So you guys work it out. And until you guys work it out, we're not doing anything. Mm. Wow. Okay. Okay. And that's what I do. That's the way I handle it. I don't, I, I stop the project. I'll say, if you guys can't talk to each other and work this out, then I'm not going to do anything. Man, how many times has that happened? Uh, well, not a lot of times, maybe three, four times, maybe okay. five times over all this time, but it has happened. Interesting. And uh, I, I just, I'm not going to take sides. Just remain neutral. I wanted to go back. Can I just ask you a Herb Albert question? I, I'm going to assume that you are you, are you you know a lot of his music or you've worked on probably a I've number. I've done 35 of his albums. Okay, to say no more. So uh, <laughs> let me say it this way. I'm not that versed in Herb Albert. Now, the way I heard of Herb Albert, and this may sound funny to you, and this would be a younger person's sort of way of saying it. I first heard of Herb Albert, um, one, because I knew he, he owned A&M Records and at the time I came around, Janet Jackson was very big. You know, that was when she was coming out through A&M. And uh, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis produced uh, the Herb Albert album, Keep Your Eyes on Me. I think that's the name of the album. Yeah. And which had a very, and, and I bought that album. Like that was the, that's the one and only Herb Albert album I bought. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I, you know, know the, all the songs. I just, it was a dope record. But I'm curious from your vantage point, and I assume you may have mastered that. I would imagine that was a very different album for Herb Albert because there's a lot of, at the time, contemporary R&B styling to it. Uh, well, yeah, Herb has definitely gone through a lot of di different changes through the years. Okay. And, and he's had other influences and stuff. He even had one where he did a duet with Hugh Masticala. Really? Um, so, you know, and Stuart Levine was involved in producing it, Hugh Masticala's okay. producer. So, uh, I mean, yeah, there's, there's been a lot of variation with Herb because, he, you know, he tries to reflect somewhat of what's going on mm -hmm. in the industry. Uh, but, you know, he's one thing that he was able to accomplish way back, I think it was probably just in the late 60s or something, when he was really hot with, with, his, with his just Tijuana Brass stuff. Mm -hmm. He had five albums on the top 10 charts, wow. on, the, on the top 100 albums. He had, he had five on the top ten that's simultaneously. Incredible. incredible. Unbelievable. Yeah, that's I mean, he was He was so popular at one time. <laughs> <laughs> that's why he bought up most of Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I was, yeah, I was, I was looking up Herb Howard a couple of weeks ago, just, just randomly, and I was just like, man, it's one of the guys you don't, I don't hear a lot about his name now, but He's one of those artists that was insanely popular. Oh, yeah. You know what I mean? It's just like, man. Uh, yeah, no, he had his period of time when he was, uh, that was right around the time of, uh, you know, Brazil 66 and all, you know, all of those, that, that kind of thing. He, he was kind of like, um, it's funny because it was kind of middle of the road stuff. It wasn't, uh, he had Joe Cocker, though, and he had mm. some of those, he had some, uh, and then, then, then he got to the police, you know, and. Uh, the record company did. He wasn't doing that. But I mean, the record company mm -hmm. was always kind of this a little bit more uh, 
not quite as, uh, 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 I don't know, what would you say? It was a little more polished in a certain way. It, it wasn't quite as crude. It wasn't street music, you know? Hmm. Um, it didn't have that kind of, it, he never went for extra funky stuff, but he did go for feel. Okay. You know, so, you know, he had that tune, Shout, was it? Was it Shout, the one that everybody dances to? It had a nice feel to it, but uh, but it wasn't real funky, funky. So you know, it's a, it's a, it's just another point of view. Okay, well, shout out to Herb Albert and A and M Records. Oh yeah, well you know they they had they were one of the biggest independents along with Electra. Yeah. Mm. Electra was huge too. I did a lot of Electra work work too uh, mm. at one time because there weren't many of us that would actually manipulate the sound. See, mastering, you know. It, when it comes right down to it, the fundamental word, me, me, uh, when they used to say mastering engineer, that meant that you cut a master disc. That's all. Mm. You knew how to cut a master disc. You knew how to operate the equipment, but you did not manipulate the sound. So all through the 50s and into the early 60s, if you were a producer, and you had an album all assembled on tape, and you didn't like the third tune, you needed top end on it or something, they would send you back into the studio, because it was all within studios a lot of times. The mastering room was in with the Columbia Records or RCA or Capitol. They all did, it was all in-house, a lot of that stuff. And so uh, you would have to go back in the studio, make a one-to-one -one or two-to-two -two transfer of the stereo tape with the EQ on it, put it in the assembly, give it to the mastering engineer, and the mastering engineer would cut it flat. So he did, and he had parameters. Uh, singles were cut at this level, LPs were cut at this level, and long LPs were this level to make it fit, just so they knew about where it should be to make it fit on the disc. But the thing about me was I happened to get in right when it became a creative part of the industry because I went to work first for Contemporary Records, which was a jazz label. Okay. And that label had had a lot of custom things built uh, so that they could manipulate the sound. Because those when they did jazz records, if you did a direct-to-two-track, they were doing direct-to-two-track recordings and direct-to-mono, I think, at times, way back before I was there. But if things were a little off and the trumpet wasn't loud enough on the right side or whatever like that, they wanted to be able to manipulate the sound in mastering on the fly uh, right on the console, like we do now anyway, we can do that. But that's become a way that everybody works. But in those mm -hmm. days, that was a new thing, and it was never open to the public until I went to work for Contemporary, and they were only maintaining their catalog. So he decided, Lester, the guy that owned it, decided to open the studio to custom work, other labels okay. coming in and using the studio because they knew it was good quality. It was some of the best quality records ever made and they still are considered that way, contemporary jazz records, the quality of them. So we started, I started getting all of these people coming in because they wanted to manipulate the sound. <laughs> and I could do it. So all of a sudden, I'm this special guy in town because <laughs> nobody else would do it. And I could do all kinds of little tricks and things because they had this, some special equalizers and so on. So. I was fortunate that way. I got in right on the ground floor. Now, 
fortunately, I had some ideas that helped a lot of times. These recordings, at least I, I had a sense, a musical sense, because I was always a huge listener. Okay. To, to uh, all through my teenage years and so forth, I listened to. All, I had I had a sound system. I had twenty eight speakers in my bedroom when wow. I was a teenager. Whoa! <laughs> and that's back in the days. <laughs> yeah, twenty eight speakers. <laughs> I mean, there were cabinets that had like. 14 in each cabinet or something like that. It was, <laughs> so I was like, wow. I'm almost, I'm almost, almost like, like out of a cartoon, you know, <laughs> but I was pretty fanatic. That's pretty crazy. I even had a jazz club when I was 19. Really? Yeah. In, I was raised in Phoenix. Oh, okay. Okay. And I had an after hours jazz club. Wow. And I'm I used sure you to got some stories to tell out of that. Camp. With all the jazz musicians when I was like 18. Oh boy. <laughs> and when I was 19, I opened a jazz club because all those coffee houses and after hours places were popular then. So this friend of mine and I said, hey, let's do that. <laughs> wow. Man. And it was very successful. What, but, what year uh, was this? You know about where- This was uh, in like the late 50s. Okay. Wow. Wow. Man. So um, I was just to going back to, well, one, you were telling us about when you got, when you sort of changed the dynamics of being able to manipulate the sound. Do you remember what year frame that was as well? Just for context. Uh, that would be, uh, that would be in 1966. It's 1966. Okay. That's when I first got to Hollywood and my first job, I had worked at a studio in Phoenix, but just as a, you know, setting up microphones and stuff, I'd worked for about not, not too long, maybe uh, six, eight months or something. Then I, I got this job at uh, contemporary. I got to know the right people, so and so forth. But uh, but then then I was working with that system, the contemporary system. So I learned a lot from the guy that owned the company, uh, and he taught me a lot about how to you know deal with. He, he kind of helped me see into the music and understand how to manipulate it with equalizers and so forth. So it was a big benefit for me to to be right there at that time when. A lot of different product was coming in, not just jazz, but to also manipulate that and see if I could get more out of it, get make it a make just make it a better recording. And so, uh, actually, I think I was pretty successful in a lot of areas, and I, I did develop this big reputation. And within two years, A and M hired me to run their mastering. Wow! Because I was doing a lot of work for Electra and A and M. And uh, uh, Electra was going to open their own mastering room, too, because they were building their first studio. But uh, I, I was more connected with A&M. I knew more of the artists. I knew Herb real well. I knew a lot of people. I knew the engineers at Electra, and they wanted me, too. But I, I chose to go to A&M. And, uh, and it was a great place to work. I mean, the, uh, Herb is terrific. Uh, I mean, if I ever wanted to work for anyone again, those would be the people. Okay. Okay. Um we're going to go back. I know my listeners, we're going to get to some print stuff, but I'm just very fascinated about some of the processes here. <laughs> um, what? And, and because I had a little experience with, I used to sell this, I used to sell like the quantity tape and all that. But I'm curious from your perspective, you're an engineer, what was the difference between going from uh, working with real to real tapes and, and, and doing the sound that way to digital? Like, I don't know. Was there a difference between going from vinyl to CD and then going to, you know, the streaming and MP3 stuff? With you know, how were the dynamics and the sound changing from your perspective? Well, 
That's of a course, big it's question. been a, a long, drawn-out process right. because there was always this misconception uh, at the beginning, back in the early 80s, when digital really started to hit, when CDs started to hit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because they had the first digital machines and so forth, and it wasn't that great. Uh, it just wasn't as good. The converters weren't as good. I mean, the, it's been a, a process over many decades of trying to make digital kind of closer to what theoretically it should be. Because, you know, there's a lot of electronics that's involved and a lot of, um, uh, in a sense, uh, coding it or, you know, changing it from one media, one type of signal to another. See, that's one of the problems with digital. It's you're changing the music into just pulses. And, 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 and so, and depending on how many pulses you have, 44.1, 96K, mm-hmm. 192 or whatever, you're going to get a higher resolution and more accuracy. But at first it was only 44.1. And that's not very accurate. And uh, it still is on CDs. But the thing is, that's good about CDs is that they haven't gone through a lot of processes down the road. They usually only go through one process and it's linear digital. See, a lot of digital nowadays is compressed and then it's expanded on the other end and which degrades the sound. It's not quite as good. Mm-hmm. So if you do a lot of uh, processing and uh, copies and all of this stuff that a lot of people want to believe doesn't affect it. It does affect it. And I've, I've proved it to everyone that's questioned it. Mm-hmm. I just I just sit them down and I'll say, okay, this one is the original, and this one's been copied one or two times. And the, everybody hears it when you can A, B it and really hear the difference. It just isn't a perfect medium. And we've been working on it. The, the industry's been working on it for, what, mm-hmm. 30, 40 years? And it's uh, it's it keeps improving, but the problem is it's also gone backwards too because streaming isn't very good, isn't as good as a CD. Right. Even if it's ninety six k, it's probably gone through a lot of processes to where that's been degraded. So uh, the most straightforward thing is still uh, CDs are still a great all around format because they're portable, and they they do contain, if they're done properly, most of the sound. It's not quite as good as it could be if it was higher resolution, but because it hasn't gone through a lot of conversions and processes, it can be pretty good. But uh, but everybody ran away from it and went uh, to uh, iTunes and things like that, which is, where those are inferior formats. iTunes is definitely inferior. Hmm. Uh, it's it's not anywhere near as good as a CD. Or things like that. I mean, streaming maybe is a little better, but I don't really even listen to streaming, you know, because it's not, it's been compromised. Wow. Uh, so, uh, you know, the sound quality, it's always been this competition between quality and convenience. Hmm. And so people tend to gravitate toward convenience. And so they would rather just almost have things automatically just play things back for them on a playlist. Right. And then, and then and that's fine. Well, at least they kind of they get the music. I mean, I even like old Fats Waller records. They're not great quality. They're from '78, but the music is fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> you still can feel it. That was yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know, you can still get that. But it's just frosting on the cake. You know, if you can really have great sound, it's just it's a bigger experience. That's right. all. But uh, the the real fundamental stuff comes through. I remember when that when that single came out, "Oh Happy Day." 
with that choir, with that Ooh, gospel choir. Yeah. I mean, it just it just has it, it just it, the sound quality was very poor. It had a lot of tape hiss and all this, but man, the feeling just came right through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, that okay. that's something is hard to stop. You know, something really is connected and 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 it's very a human feeling. Okay. I mean, I've seen things. Look, I've I've seen things that are highly simplified that just floor you with the with the feeling. I used when I used to hang out at the Black Elks Club in South Phoenix. There was this truck driver that would come in. I was an old drummer too at one time. Okay. But this truck driver would come in and sit in on the drums, and all he would do is play time, and it was like shockingly good. Just playing time, it was like, what? <laughs> Why do you do that? I mean, it's simple in a way, basically, but boy, where does that feeling come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, it's just there. And, some and, some and people like, just got you know, it. You, yeah. you just enjoy it. Yeah. And you, you, you don't need to know where it comes from. You just know that this guy is in touch with something mm-hmm. that goes beyond your intellectual. Interesting. So, I mean, these kind of experiences, that, that's, that's why I got out of playing drums. Because <laughs> <laughs> I worked on a rhythm and blues band in the, in the Air Force when I was in the Air Force. Okay. And I was the, it was a black band, and I was the only white guy on the band, and I was the drummer. Uh, oh, oh, okay. And you had to, you, you <laughs> held the drums I, down. I, that's okay. funny, isn't it? Yeah, because yeah, it's, it's unusual. I, could, I was pretty good at playing right. time, though. And every now and then, we'd all be on the same wavelength, and we'd all look around at each other after a tune and go, what happened? You know, but, but the guy that ran the band was, uh, could also play drums, but he was like a Fats Domino type guy and he had he played alto sax and he could sing and he was out in front. But every now and then he would sit in playing drums and I'd go out in the audience and I would sit out there and I'd watch him and he pretty much just played time. But I, I, I would think to myself, I can't do that. Hmm. I can't make it feel like that just so, uh, so easily. He just, would sit up there and just, it would just swing. And, and so I, you know, when I got out of the service, I never touched the drums again. That's I said, I'm going to be a recording engineer and that's it. And I drove all the way from Northeast Montana at a big sack base up there. I was in electronic countermeasures. Mm. And I went all the way down to Hollywood and I walked into Capitol. I walked into head of recording. I said, okay, what do I have to do? I want to be a recording engineer. Huh. And, uh, well, I was pretty headstrong in those days, but, uh, and I actually ended up still going back to Phoenix and working for the, in the studio there. That's how I got to meet some people from Hollywood and so forth. And, and eventually I got into, into LA, but, uh, but I'm, I've got a very good old American story. You know, I was just so passionate about it. So ambitious and just so determined that everybody just kind of like, said okay <laughs> <laughs> hey that's a lot of the struggle man you believe well, it, it. They'll, they'll, they'll believe it too yeah. look if they really if, if if you really are in touch with your emotion and your your passion i mean if you you have tremendous energy mm-hmm. and it's always there so if you finally find that no matter where it is that it, it doesn't matter i mean parents get in the way sometimes because they want you to be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever because they want you to be able to take care of yourself but sometimes it gets in the way of what your real passion is. And if mm. you finally can find your real passion and tap into it, you're going to have energy that won't quit. And people are going to see that. 
Mm. You're going to feel it when they're around you. Some people need to hear that for sure. And, well, and, I, and, and, yeah, and I try to help people do that, you know, to just 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 kind of like relax and try to feel what what is, what's the thing that you always notice and, and it always attracts you and always goes right to you. Uh, remember those things. I mean, get around that stuff. That's that's the stuff that's going to open you up. Wow. You telling that story about you being a drummer in that band I, that I can actually understand how you are able to hear all these different types of music. Just for me, I can, that makes a lot of sense in context of what you do because you were able to be in that band and you could actually see what it is you could do versus what that other drummer did. And you, right. and you can hear, I think you have that, obviously you have that ear. Well, I was, that, I was being honest with myself too. You know, I was, right. I was thinking in order to do that and even to play the way I would really prefer, which is bebop jazz, which is really difficult. I thought, you know, I really don't want it that bad. You find out. You find out how bad you want something. It's mm. self-limiting, something like music, because it's obvious whether you're good or not, or right. you're, you're able to do what you want to do. It's obvious. Same way with sports. Those areas, you're either going to be able to do it or not. Mm. And, if you can't, and if you don't want to do the woodshedding and the work, that it mm. takes to do it, then you're not, you shouldn't be doing it. Right. Go sit down. <laughs> yeah. Commentators. <laughs> hey, it's all right. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, this is what I, I realized, you know, and I knew that my original passions were all about audio and just listening and enjoying music. Mm. And so I thought, well, that's a natural. I mean, I knew that was my natural. I was my, my first love anyway, with things like that. I was just playing drums because I, I was just always fascinated with drummers and what they could do. But I mean, look, there was a Mary J. Blige thing that I did a few years ago for uh, like a big uh, convention of, of all the penny stores or something. And she uh, performed and I was doing the video for it. And I, I was doing the music, you know, the, the mastering for the music. And mm -hmm. Mary J. Blige was standing up there and they started this tune. And there was this big black drummer in the back. And he started out, he, he just went wham. Uh, you know, on an accent at the beginning. And it was like almost like the whole world came down. <laughs> it was so right. And so it had a thing that I, I don't know how it, it, it's, it was just one hit. But it, it just like shocked everyone into feeling what was going to happen. Hmm. It, was a, it was the most amazing thing. Just that one hit. It was like, just like, oh, my God. <laughs> Interesting. So, there, so you you hear things in these in songs, and you're even like, whoa, like, oh yeah, okay. oh yeah, no, no. I mean, when it's there, it's there. You know, it's like Quincy says too. You know, Quincy says, hey, when it happens, you know, you, what are you gonna do? And it, it's just there, and you you feel it. Man, let me let, let me take. Let's go back to some prints here, and, and so sure. we're now we're in a time where you know vinyl. And reissues, I, I guess, like taking even the older albums and reissuing them on vinyl is a very big thing these days. Um, of course, with the, the print stuff now is the thing to go back and to re-release these albums with the unreleased materials added to them. Um, there's always been 
an album with, by Prince fans, or by Prince, that Prince fans, so man, it was always too low. Like the sound of this whole album was just like, you had to turn it up compared to the other albums. And that album was Sign of the Times. Oh, really? Yes, that was a, that's a, that was a thing with the Prince fans. Like, we love that album, but you listen to it amongst the other stuff, and it's like, what's going on? Like, it seems like it's just low in overall sound. So I'm, well, well, I'm not sure. Now, see, the problem is, what are they just listening to it on a CD or on a vinyl? It, it could be. Uh, I think in, in more normal times of today, it would have probably been more CD. And CD started with the CD. I think with the CD re- release is where that talk started because to happen. It's really hard to say what happens because sometimes some of the subsequent releases, when they re-release stuff and so forth, it's done mm-hmm. by somebody else. Or they, okay. You know, it's uh, it, it's hard to say. I don't know. I would have to research that. But, but if it was, if it's vinyl, there is a problem with vinyl, you know. Right. Vinyl is so physical that you can only put so much time on a disc. Okay. And you can only put, and, and the thing that takes up space on a disc is bottom end. So if you have anything that's got a lot of bottom punch and so forth, you're not going to be able to make a loud record if it's long, if the sides are long. And a lot of CDs started getting kind of long for yeah. vinyl. And uh, so we do run into the problem of having to cut things at lower levels. But here's an interesting factor about vinyl, though. They might be comparing it to, say, a different disc, like another release of Prince's and say, this this one's lower than the other. Mm-hmm. But in vinyl, the lower the level, the cleaner the sound. Hmm. Okay. Because, think of it, it's mechanical. The more radical that groove, the harder it is to track it. So if it's a lower level, it's going to be easier to track and you're going to be able to get cleaner sound. However, the one drawback is if you go too low, you've got a certain amount of surface noise on a vinyl. You know, it's like tape hiss. It's, it's a similar thing. It's, mm-hmm. There's a certain kind of noise floor that is always there. So if you go too low on level, you'll get close to that noise floor, and that'll bother you maybe. Okay. So you don't want to go too low. But if you try it, we used to make records too hot, actually, because mm-hmm. if we made them, that was just for commercial reasons, for competitive reasons. Mm-hmm. But I never believed in it because the sound wasn't as clean. And you had to have a better cartridge all the time to at least get it somewhat clean. But most people don't have expensive cartridges. So, I mean, I don't, I'm not a big believer in loud vinyl. Okay. And in fact, even when we do all this competitive stuff on digital, we're using all these digital processors or we're using compressors and limiters and things like that. That all degrades the quality. Mm. But it's not all about quality. I'm not saying that either. I'm just saying that it's a balance. You, you do need to use some of these processors because they make things sound, uh, they, they increase the average level so that you've got a little more energy always there. Mm-hmm. And so with some pop things, that's important. It's more important than the loss of quality. So it's always this uh, judgment that a mastering engineer has to make between uh, are we getting more from this processing we're doing than we're losing? Because you're going to lose quality-wise, but you might pick up a better feeling for that music. Right. So okay. if, if you made pop music like a, like, a, like say, a classical music or a jazz record, if you, just, if you just were an audiophile and you were just trying to only get the perfect sound of those instruments, pop music would just lay there. It wouldn't be as exciting, I don't think. 
Interesting. Because you need to manipulate that in such a way that it's really coming at you all the time. And so uh, it, it, it's just more exciting that way. It, it helps it. The, actually, the, 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 the electronics and the manipulation many times helps, helps the stuff be more effective. I, I see what so you're saying. There's, so, there's, so, no rule. there's no rule in, in pop music at all. Uh, I mean, you can do anything you want. It doesn't matter if the quality is, is getting lost or something. If it still, if it feels better and more exciting, mm -hmm. that's what counts. It, you still are. You have to service, like Swedeen always said, you have to service the music. You're not only just thinking about quality because if you only think about quality, it's not gonna. It probably won't be that good. You've got to. It's the overall experience and how it hits you. And and that could be a little degradation in sound, but it's going to be a bigger. It's the musical experience that you're looking for. The the most okay. effective musical experience. Okay. Um. Well, with with that said, then with this uh, sign of the times project, how, what is like? And and just to be clear for the listeners, because a lot of time you know they they promote these projects and they'll say remastered and i think sometimes people think that that may be remixed and i don't think they're remixing these records are they like most of them no no okay. they're not so what, what what goes into the the process of how do you remaster something your previous work like what makes a difference to that? how do you change that was there is that saying there's something wrong with the ver the previous version well or? you know it, it sometimes uh, the remastering because we have better equalizers they're a little cleaner and so forth and we have Maybe better uh, 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 if it was a digital recording. We have better uh, converters now, going through you know the D to A converters and things like that. We we have we have some better equipment now, mm -hmm. uh, and and we can actually uh, get our cake and eat it too. In other words, we can make it really basically like it was, except it's just uh, just more detailed and cleaner and. But it still has the same can still have the same processing and all that, so it wouldn't change that much. But the remastering also can get uh, take advantage of of the whole process all the way down the line uh, that that's been improved over the years. Because, like I was saying earlier, digital has been in a process for decades of getting better and better and better, and also worse and worse and worse, depending <laughs> on where it's going. But right. the capability is there for it to actually be better than it was maybe back when it was originally released. So we're trying to actually do that. Like we, we, like we did the whole U2 catalog. I didn't do it. One of my other engineers did. But they tried to uh, uh, kind of get what's, what was on those original half-inch 30 IPS master tapes. Mm. And... On the blogs, everybody was shocked at hearing way more in the mixes than they had ever heard before. Okay. So, I mean, it's there are improvements that we can make in the remastering, even in especially if vinyl. You know, vinyl on average is better than it's ever been because it came out of the, the resurgence of vinyl came out of audiophile people mm -hmm. because they've always liked vinyl. They like the sound of vinyl. So I started back in the mid-90s with one of these one companies. I did hundreds of albums for the audiophile market. And it made the plants do better and work harder to make better vinyl uh, pressings uh, because those people demanded it. And so it's still kind of there. It's, it, they, they, the standards have gone up. So on average, vinyl is better than it's ever been. 
would you would you recommend like say I I was gonna go buy the new Prince re re release or whatever? Would you say I would get the best sound if I went and got the vinyl version or the CD? Uh well, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, it depends. You know, because uh, here's what happens. Let me tell you something that happens, and people just don't know this. But what happens is a lot of times when they want us to remaster something. I, I'm not sure whether uh, we try to let them know that we really need to go back to the original, especially a lot of that stuff that Prince did was on tape. Mm-hmm. And it's very hard to get them to release the master tape. Right. And that's where the best quality is. See, they'll, they'll send us like a digital copy. That, that, was, my, that was my next question, too. <laughs> so I'm glad yeah, you're They'll going send us either a digital copy or they'll make a tape copy. Of the original tape, well, it's never going to be as good mm-hmm. uh, in that respect. But we could go back over it and maybe come up with maybe a more effective EQ. It does happen. We try to. We're trying to actually make it even better than it was, uh, if it's possible. And even with a little degradation from it being a generation down that we're working from, it is possible to to just put some new thinking on it and. Maybe actually finding, you know, because you always are on this funny uh, feeling a lot of times. is, And that's why it takes so long sometimes to even mix things. It's like, have we gotten everything that we possibly can get out of this recording? Mm-hmm. Have we tried everything? Uh, and it's a, it's a big trial and error thing. And people, people think that we just go in and we just, we just listen to it. And we know what to do. We don't always know what to do. We know what. We, what what might make it better, but when we try it, we don't even like it ourselves. So we have to keep trial and error, trial and error, but we have to keep that vision of what's going on out of those speakers. Are we really getting it better? Because one of the problems with a lot of engineers nowadays is they're drunk with technology. Mm. They got their heads so buried in the computer and they love all of the little plugins that keep the pitch right and keep the tempo right and keep right. this right and that right, that they strangle the life out of it. They're not even listening to what's what they're doing to the music. Mm. So all of that stuff's important. You still are serving the music. That's the key thing is can we make this thing even better? And that's what we try to do. And so the perception is when they reissue these things is that we've done that. But it isn't always true. Interesting. <laughs> Well, you know, it's it's a very difficult business in that way, you know, to really get in touch with this music and try to really do justice to it. Let me let me ask you this: Do you feel? You know, when I, I'm not naming specific releases, but are you, are you feel confident that yeah, I I did? I don't know. Is it doing? Did I bring something else to this that I did from 30 years ago? Or you know what I mean? Like, do you feel like? Oh, I think we are. Okay. The reason why is that we have done a lot of work through the – see, we're, we're different than a lot of people in that we build most of this equipment. Mm. We even build our own – We what, what drives our cutting system and, 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 and the signal path of that cutting system has been worked on many times, and it's only done to the ear. We don't just say, well, this new preamp or whatever is, is better because the specs are better. No, we don't go by that. We always go by what we hear. Because that's the last thing that really tells you whether it's better or not. And we always compare to what we had before. And we have a better system than we had 
say 10 years ago, okay. you know, and it cuts a better record. So uh, we can improve, especially in vinyl, but you see a lot of stuff in digital, it just goes into streaming services, you know, and that's inferior again. Right. When you, um, just to, to go back on Prince again, um, did you master projects from him that were never released? Do you have any remembrance of doing uh, things? I don't think so. Um, uh, yeah, he was so prolific, though it is possible. I don't. I think there were some things that he didn't release, but you know, I could do a, an album for Prince and sending him refs back and forth from Minneapolis. That's the way we would work a lot of times. He wasn't with me, but I would do a, a new ref with some changes he might want. And, and after we get done mastering and getting things approved of an album, within a week or two, you'd have another one. <laughs> I mean, and it wasn't all completely done, but he'd want me to go over it and start sending him refs on that one. Oh, interesting. And it's like, wow, this guy, does he live in his basement or what? <laughs> you know, I mean, he was, he definitely was one of those people that was just so obsessed with, you know, doing his uh, art. Uh, I mean, he was an unusual person that way, but he was very shy. Hmm. He never talked much. Very shy. Was there ever a, a project or something that he may have had a, a more sort of like, man, I'm really this is the this is the one, Bernie, or you know, or somebody down the chain told you like this is a really important one that you work on? Was there anything like that that ever happened? No, nah, I don't know about that. It's just that we, we knew we had really good stuff. <laughs> it stands out. You know, it's funny how that happens. But, you know, like when, when I go back, to, I, I remember experiencing things like that with other artists, too. Like when Carol King's Tapestry came in mm -hmm. for me to master. Now, that was a huge album. Okay. Now, of course, I didn't know it was going to be huge. But when I put that tape on, there was just something there. You know, it's unexplainable, but it, something came through that you, just grabbed you. That there was some kind of sentiment, some way she was singing something, and it was very simple. That album, there wasn't much to it at all, but it was mm. just really good. Same way with Prince. That stuff would come in, and it's like, damn, this, is <laughs> <laughs> this guy really knows what he's doing. You know, I mean, he really has a certain brand of music that's unique and sticks out. Wow. So, I mean, he's just one of those people. It's just like, it's, uh, how, do, how do you explain it, you know? It uh, goes back to that feel, I guess you said. He just has it, right? Yeah, it's just, you know, he's just so dedicated. And, uh, but he, but he, he has the, he has the, the ability to express what he's feeling through music, you know, and that, and that takes a, a certain uh, knowledge and technique too, you know, and, and, you have to, and he could play all those instruments. Right. You know, I mean, it's like uh, he had it covered in a lot of ways. And so, uh, yeah, that, that, some of that stuff was just really great. I mean, just, uh, I, I like his older stuff the most. Okay. Because okay. it felt better, I think. Same way with Michael. The stuff that Quincy did felt the be best. Mm. It swung the most. Uh, you know, the, one of the problems nowadays is we use a lot of machines. 
that they've kind of helped be a little more natural or human. But uh, the thing that they got into for a while, and it's a little better now, but I'm saying after all of those first albums that all came out with Prince and Michael and all that, everybody wanted to try to get feel by just playing harder, hmm. just by playing the accent harder. And that isn't, that isn't really, that, it doesn't have the real nuance of feel. It's just power. And it has something, but it doesn't have that thing that were on his first three albums all the way up to bad, you know, with Michael, you know, with Off the Wall and Thriller. I mean, that had a feel that Quincy gave it because he's an old jazz guy. Mm-hmm. But the, and same with well, Prince is an old jazz guy, particularly. But boy, those first albums with Sheila and stuff like that, well, they were the, the feeling on it was fantastic all the way up through Pur- Purple Rain. Uh, yeah, you know. He just had that way of making the thing feel good. And I, that, that's a big thing for me is that it feels good. The feeling of it. What, let me ask you this, because I, you, you won a Grammy. One of the Grammys you won was uh, for the speaker box, Love Below. The oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're okay. great. Yeah, those guys were. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that's uh, Andre 3000 and yeah, Big Boy. Big Boy. Yeah. <laughs> Man, yeah, so was, go ahead. No, I, I was just going to say, yeah, that was that was an interesting album too, and that even had a jazz thing in it. Yeah. So, in fact, you know, Andre, I actually turned Andre on to bebop jazz. Really? I gave him some CDs, some old Sonny Rollins CDs, some of the better Sonny Rollins CDs, which is my favorite tenor player. Interesting. And because uh, he was really interested, and he didn't know a lot about jazz. Did you do his? Um... Is it the, the ah, School of 3000? It was like he had a solo thing, but it was for a TV show. No, I don't, I don't think that. It after, had a lot of jazz stuff on it, which is making yeah, me think that. Yeah, okay. no, he got, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised that he got more and more into jazz. Okay. Well, I was bringing them up and then like, Dr. What was the first hip hop project that you, you guys did there? Master, do you remember? Ah, uh, well, I don't know. It's you know the problem with mastering is is you do two hundred, two hundred fifty albums a year. Oh, okay. It's yeah. like hard to keep track of all this stuff. Gotcha. And yet people will come up to me and say, like, I even did a box set of, of who was it? Um, James Taylor. Okay. Recently, I did a box six six album box set of remastering, and. All my notes were in the master boxes. And I thought, God, I didn't realize I did so many of his albums. You know, I didn't even remember. I knew I did some, but I didn't know I did most of them. Hmm. You know, that, that's how crazy it gets because I do, I do, I've done so many albums. Brothers Johnson, whatever. You know, it's like, uh, but it's all been fun. <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, Bernie. Um yeah. With companies like Mobile Fidelity Sound Labs, when they do a remaster, and sometimes I don't know if they do some of your work, but when the, if they do, are you involved with that as well? No, I I, I wouldn't be involved in something if another mastering place was doing something. I, I probably wouldn't have anything to do with it. It would just be what the record company or whoever's releasing it, because a lot of times they're independent companies that just license the album for audiophile purposes. Oh. And 
and and and they just license it, and so they get the master tape or the ma- or a copy of the master, and it goes to whoever guy they use to to do the transfer, and then they decide how to do it. Interesting, interesting. Yeah, so it's, it's hard to say. It could vary a lot. Now, with this uh, upcoming Prince project, I read somewhere that, and I'm just quoting, so it may be inaccurate, but I'm I read that you were editing it or mastering it in 24 192 is that is that true yeah that's yeah that's true i mean we do a um you know if, of course when it comes out it's not 192 unless you're in a high res uh streaming service but uh yeah we make uh we we run all the way up to 192 in a lot of these uh transfers and and masterings but a lot of these recordings the thing about digital is uh, a lot of these recordings were originally done digitally. And so, and, and those sampling rates are low. So we're not going to really make it really any better or not almost imperceptibly better if we change it to 192. It doesn't help because once it's, say, 44.1, that's what it is. You're not going to make it any better. That kind of limits what, mm-hmm. what, what it has. Uh, whereas if we were able to get the analog tape, Compared to, say, the first CDs that were put out, the 192 would be better because the analog tape doesn't have that limitation that 44.1 has. If it's a good analog recording, it's limitless. I mean, it doesn't really have any cutoff in the high frequencies or anything, and the accuracy of the high frequencies is better because those low sampling rate recordings, that's where they suffer the most is in the high frequencies because those high frequency signals are not sampled very well. There's just not enough pulses that measure that waveform. Whereas 192, at least you've got more pulses, but it still isn't as good as an analog tape. Okay. Um, Going back to vinyl quickly, I noticed that the Sign of the Times project is going to be in 180 gram vinyl. Now, I'm getting slowly reacquainted with, with vinyl myself, does that really make a difference? Uh, a little bit. It's not a big deal. It's just a thicker record. And it, what it does is it cuts down on vibration, uh, for one thing, and it's easier to press it really flat. So that there's, you know how records sometimes your playback is bouncing on the outer edge especially? You know, it's just a little bit warped out there. Because when they, when they actually manufacture it, they have to trim it. And sometimes it puts a little crimp in it, so it, and it tends to have a little bit of a bounce there. Well, it's it's more steady, but see, you you even get uh, with with uh, with uh, vinyl, you can get feedback right through your cartridge from the turntable if your speakers are close to the turntable. So because it's it's almost like a little microphone, the cartridge. So what happens is if you get vibration in that disc, it feeds back into the, the a signal that you don't want into the cartridge. So it's a little better from that standpoint. You know, it's a, a more solid piece of uh, vinyl that doesn't vibrate as much, won't, won't be as uh, susceptible to any kind of uh, acoustical vibrations or anything like that. And it will be probably flatter. So uh, it does have advantages. Um, okay. Well, I wanted to ask this, and you know, we'll, we'll kind of wrap up here, but... Um in today today's sort of climate, would 
whatever record companies are left, do they still put uh, you know a heavy sort of interest or uh, on getting these albums mastered? Uh, is there, you know what I mean? Is there still a lot? Is that something that's a very big thing in the industry or are they just like, just put it out? What, you mean, are you talking about new product? Like new, newer stuff, yeah. Oh no, newer stuff. We still go through uh, a whole process of uh, working with the artist and the okay. producer. And it's the same as before, except that the budgets tend not to be as high. You know, it's not quite as good as it used to be. It used to be the sky mm. was the limit. It okay. didn't matter. Nobody cared because there was so much money in the industry when that was the primary entertainment medium for CDs and vinyl and stuff like that. Mm. Now, uh, because they have to share so many of the profits and stuff with iTunes and with Spotify and all these different streaming stuff, they don't, the budget, they, they're a little more strict on, they just kind of try to influence you not to go crazy on the cost. <laughs> Hmm. But uh, but still, it's the producer's medium, and if they feel they need to spend more time with it and go back in the studio and remix something and do this and do that, they we still do a lot of that. Okay. But uh, but we tend not to be we tend to be a little more efficient and, and a little more cost conscious. But 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 the, the, there still is a lot of back and forth and so forth with the artist and the producer, and and they come in and yeah no we it's it's that that part of it the, at the start when you're first putting out a record. They still want it to, to have the best chance to become successful. Okay. And, and has there been any, um, have you guys done any work in like uh, movies or oh, yeah. games and stuff like that? Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Well, I have one, one of my engineers, that's, uh, we have a female engineer in that, and she's got a whole niche there. She does a lot of games, really? music for games. Okay. She masters it. Nice. And so she does all the, uh, you know, adjustments to what they want also to fit with what, where it's going to go. But she, uh, she spends a lot of time with some of that stuff, you know, getting the, the levels right and getting the sound right. Uh, so yeah, no, we, and we do, uh, it, it's usually just the soundtrack version that comes out on, on audio. You know, we don't really do it for the movie if we're working on a movie or something. Okay. If we're working on a soundtrack, that it's usually destined only for that release for for the the audio release for for either streaming or for CDs or some or vinyl even gotcha. but it doesn't it doesn't really go we're not doing it we're not doing the mastering for the movie okay. only in a few cases like if it's going to be a music video we do now if it's going to be a music video we might do the whole 5.1 and everything oh really okay would you ever be interested in, like, if Marvel came to you and said, hey, Bernie, I want you guys to do our next big Marvel movie? Well, I mean, we, 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 can, we do whatever, you know, we're just an independent company. And so whatever we can do, we will do. You know, mm -hmm. I, do, I even do every year, I do the Christmas album of the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. Oh, right. okay. <laughs> and, all, and that's all surround sound. And it's all, wow. you know, very high-end stuff, you know, with a that big choir and all that stuff. But, you know, they come in and they hire us okay. because they like our sound. They like what we can do and they want, they want the best quality and we feel we can, we're right up there. So, uh, they come to us every year and we do their whole Christmas show. All right. And, and you have, and I don't think I said it, I mean, you have your own studio, you guys are in Hollywood and you have a team of oh, other, yeah. other engineers and stuff. About, here what, we have 17 people here or something. We, wow. we have, about five engineers that are pretty busy all the time. 
man, you guys are an institution. Like yeah, your name also, rings out, man. Like yeah, this. we're also in Tokyo, you know. That's right. That's right. Wow. Yeah, we have a studio mm-hmm. there too. Wow. Did you ever thought you would have like a studio in a different country? And I never that- thought that. No. You know, just you know, I'm that way. I'm I'm very I'm kind of pretty conservative in a lot of ways. I'm kind of insecure actually about doing something like that. But but the, all, all of these things have happened from outside pressures. You people encouraging me, hey man, you should open your own studio. You should do this. You should do that because you know you're doing all these hit records and uh, <laughs> so the, so then you get thinking and say, God, maybe I could do that. But uh, and I did, and it's been very successful so i mean i'm I'm fortunate that way but the tokyo thing was interesting because we had this one guy that came in years ago 20 years ago japanese kid young he was working at one of the studios as as a second engineer but he came in and he told me and i've never heard this before he said you know i've always only wanted to be a mastering engineer and i thought god i've never heard anyone say that that they only wanted to be a mastering engineer. Usually people want to be a mixer and they want to be a more in a glamorous position with the artist and stuff uh, and working on the actual making of the music. And, uh, and he wanted to just come and sit with me and just see what I did every Saturday when I would come in and just do cleanup work and stuff. And so he was there, there. And pretty soon we needed a night guy, a night assistant for one of my other engineers, and we hired him. And then he started working on me about putting a studio in in Tokyo. And that's how it all came about. Eventually, we built him a studio because he was so ambitious. Mm. Wow. But we don't speak Japanese. And we don't, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's... <laughs> how, how often do you go out there? I don't go there much anymore. It just kind of runs itself. You know, he's in charge of it. It's a, it's, we do, we also do Blu-ray authoring there, too. We do some mm. video work there, too. So we have two floors of this office building. Wow. Now, do you have uh, you have kids or family and stuff? Oh yeah, I, I, yeah. I've I've been married for fifty years. Wow! Wow! wow. Yeah, that's unusual in this business. That's <laughs> you know? unusual, uh, period. because yeah, I've seen a lot of casualties. <laughs> but uh, well, wow. no, Great I have a, a a son and a daughter, and my son's married and has two kids, and awesome. like, I'm a grandfather. Awesome. You know? Good. Okay. So, you know, uh, you did yeah, all no, right. You did all right. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's, it's worked out for me. I mean, let, let me, I have to say though, that I was, I was in there in the good old battle days that I call the seventies and stuff when there's a lot of temptations, a lot of people doing cocaine, a lot mm. of, a lot of staying up three days on end that these engineers was dragged in. And, you know, <laughs> I mean, it was, it was pretty excessive. The entertainment industry can be really excessive and I used to work too much. And so I, I, to, I, I you know, I, it was hard on my marriage at times because I was working all the time. So, you know, it's, it's, it can get you. Uh, yeah. And you, it really is a, a chore to try to balance your life. And, and when you're younger, you tend to go too far sometimes in, in one area or the other. But you're also trying to be successful and trying to make a name for yourself. So it's really hard at the beginning because I was doing 16-hour days all the time. Wow. And and go home and sleep for four hours and go right back to work. What what, what was the thing that changed that for you where you realized like I gotta well, have a balance? I mean, I I, I you know, uh, well, getting more successful, I was able to get assistance to okay. do the follow up work. I could all I had to do was sit down and EQ it and set it up, and then they would run it and and make the masters and do all of that stuff. I was able to get hire more people to assist me. 
So that's that's how it helped that. And also the fact that I knew that it was a little too hard on everyone. And I couldn't spend enough time with my family and all that. So that typical story, Quincy says the same thing. That's what he regrets. He didn't spend any much time with his kids. Mm. So, uh, you know, that's important, too. You know, and and of course, as you get older, you realize that that's one of the most important things are your interpersonal relationships. Right. All right. Uh, Last thing I'll ask, we'll wrap it on the segment over. Any, any, any words uh, for the budding, you know, for a kid that wants to be an engineer, you know, today or coming, getting into this, like what, what path should they get on? Is there something they should start to learn or should, or should they just listen to the music like you did? And, and go well, I mean, you, you should be a good listener because, you know, you need to have kind of some sort of experience. What I tell uh, people in my seminars, because I give seminars, I used to, I haven't done that for a while, but I, I tell them that, you know, like you need to uh, develop this ability, you know, to manipulate the sound to improve the experience. And the thing that they, a lot of them don't realize that, that what I said earlier was that what you're really trying to do is, and, and, I, and I, I pose it to them. I say, look, you're sitting at the console and somebody brings you in a piece of music. You don't even know what it is necessarily you put it up on the speakers what how do you know what to do hmm. and i i stop and i just say what how do you know what to do you just make it loud is that mastering i mean you put compressors how do you how do you know what to do so in other words what you need to know is that you have to have some sort of idea of where that music can go you might even have to try manipulating it a little bit, but you have to be in, focused on what you're doing to the feeling of it. Are you really making this thing come alive more, connect with you? You're the one that has to use yourself. You have to be not prejudiced mm. to whatever music comes in. You wouldn't know what to do if you're prejudiced because you won't like it. You don't even want to hear it. So that's one thing that I learned, too, is you better not be prejudiced uh, to the music or some type of music. You should be able to get on that emotional waveform or, you know, wave that that music has because you're a human being just like that person you're working with. And there's no reason why you can't get on that wavelength and get in touch with what they're trying to do emotionally because it's all an expression of a human being's emotion. And you should be able to get in touch with it and maybe enhance it and improve it, but you have to use yourself to know if you're getting anywhere. So when you turn a knob and change the EQ or whatever, you have to also understand whether or not you're actually making yourself feel better. And so this is one of the key things that I try to teach people is that you can develop this. You just have to listen to a lot of music and you have to get an idea of what is the best of hip hop. What's the best of polka music, Hawaiian music? I don't care. What's the best of bebop? What's the best of rock and roll? What are some of the records that you've heard? And you have to listen to a whole bunch of stuff. You have to know the ones that really stand out. You know, if you listen to a lot of things, in one area like hip hop, the really great ones are going to start standing out. You're going to know what a really great hip hop record does, how it feels, 
what, uh, how it was mixed, all the things that it had that make it so special. Now, when somebody else brings in a hip-hop record, you've got that as an ideal in your mind, well, how good it can actually be. And then you try to make that one come up to that level of quality mm. and communication. And you might not be able to, but you at least know where you would like it to go. You have to have an ideal. You have to have an idea of what a really great one of that kind of music sounds like. Does that make sense? Oh, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you, you could use that philosophy just in life in general with dealing yeah, with no, people, you can. Right? Yeah. No, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it opens awesome. up your whole world. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, there really is no reason to be prejudiced. <laughs> right. <laughs> We're all human beings. We're all the same. Man, you, are you running for president? Like, what, 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 what? <laughs> the, the, the other Bernie. Oh, yeah, well, I mean, we do need that. <laughs> oh yeah, I, let's not get into that. <laughs> are you? Are you? Are you voting for Bernie? Yeah, Bernie Grudman. Yeah, I'm Bernie. I remember when Bernie Sanders uh, started to get up when I saw those bumper stickers years ago. I thought, hey, I finally made it. <laughs> Awesome, man. Uh, Mr. Grudman, uh, listen, very much appreciate you uh, spending time. Man, such a wealth of knowledge, uh, experience. I wish that I, I, I uh, can only aspire to be able to just be into music this long and to be able to understand all the different genres and appreciate it all. That is that's beautiful that you do that. Your ear has blessed a lot of us over the years. So I hope you know that. And we appreciate the work that you. Well, thank you for the compliment. That's really yeah, man. nice to hear. Because that, yeah, that's you know that's why I'm in it, and I've been it that long, and I'm still here. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Still, still, still top demand, man. That's that says a lot. Yeah, let me co-sign what what Mike said, Bernie. It's great, and it's just so humbling that you know you have your fingerprints over this entire industry, and you're such a accessible friendly yet knowledgeable cat man i really appreciate you coming on with us today well it was my pleasure i enjoyed speaking about this i, I do this all the time but not as i haven't been doing it as much but it is fun to always talk about it and kind of go back over what uh what what actually is going on because you know years ago when people at first asked me to do a seminar and i thought god you know i don't know anything uh, I, I don't have much to talk about. I, I don't know what I'm doing. You know what I mean? You, don't, you didn't quite have it. You did, hadn't really uh, thought about how to put it into words, mm -hmm. what you do, or to how you explain it to somebody. Right. But I, I, I took the first seminar and I put down some pointers and things, but then I realized I was talking for four or five hours. <laughs> and I thought, damn, there's a lot of stuff here that, that, that they don't know. Or they've never thought about and that they need to think about and that I've just started to try to verbalize because mm -hmm. I, you know, you, sometimes you just do things like a lot of those bebop jazz musicians. They couldn't even read music, but they played fantastic stuff. It's just that it was just part of them. And they, they didn't realize that. I don't think they realized that they never put it into words or, mm -hmm. or tried to figure out exactly how to describe it to somebody. And so that's what I had to start thinking about. How am I going to, Get this across to what to help people do it, right? Well, no, this is this is the way, man. Storytelling and 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 sharing the experiences is how we keep this thing going. And uh, with that said, 
Uh, shout out to all the listeners, uh, supporters of the show, Podcast Juice and Podcast on Prince. And once again, thank you to Bernie Grudman. Uh, shout out to Big Sexy and Sack. As I always say at this time, work it like a job. We'll see you next time. Peace.